so much, Chad. It is a it's a privilege to get to host this conversation with uh, Dr. Matthew J. Tuniga, who is the professor of ethics and Christian history at Calvin Theological Seminary. And uh, yeah, that's certainly a, a critical role in our denomination in the life of the church. Uh, and on top of that, you're also active in many other ways, including on, as Chad mentioned, synodical study committees and in the work of synod. And uh, in particular, this last synod, uh, I had the privilege of having you as the faculty advisor on the advisory committee that I was chairing. And uh, I was really blessed by your input uh, and your wisdom on that. Mm. And so uh, it's I'm looking forward to this conversation tonight about church discipline and and in in a particular, and I, I'm really happy about the way you you uh, kind of introduced this already in, in our pre-conversations, gospel-centered discipline, yeah, because that's what discipline really is about. Mm-hmm. And so certainly we're going to get into some, some questions and a little conversation, and I'm sure we'll have some from those who are watching too. Uh, but why don't you just give us an introduction, um, a little bit church discipline, how does the gospel relate to that, and... Uh, get us rolling. Yeah, thanks, Chad and Stephen, and thank you everyone who's uh, joining us this evening. It's a privilege to uh, speak with you all and talk with you all. Um, Yeah, I'm not going to say a ton, but I did kind of want to walk through some things that I typically walk through in my ethics class when we talk about discipline, just to kind of orient us about, I think, what's at stake, why we need discipline, uh, and then what discipline is not, and then what discipline is. And I'll I'll look at least briefly at a few of the passages that I think are perhaps most relevant. So in his uh, famous work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is writing to German Christians in the 1930s, uh, Nazi Germany era, against the subtle deceitfulness of what he called cheap grace. And this is what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Obviously, Bonhoeffer speaking into a time when he thought there was a lot of cheap grace going around in the Lutheran tradition of which he was a part. There were a lot of nominal German Christians who perceived Christianity as sort of their their birthright as German people. They were born into the church, but it didn't make a whole lot of difference. And when he's writing this, he doesn't even know how bad it's going to get in the following decade. And we can all think of examples where we would look at a culture in a similar kind of cultural captivity, and we would say, that kind of Christianity is sheer hypocrisy. It just destroys the witness of the gospel. Um, Another example of this might be uh, in the antebellum South, when uh, slaveholders would occasionally commit some of the most terrible things against people under their care, and you can't find anything in the church records suggesting that they were disciplined. And I, I think most people look at that and say, that should never have been allowed. They should not have been able to be members in, of good standing in a church. And the fact that they were seriously compromised the witness of the church. The famous ethicist Oliver O'Donovan makes the point that he was he was trying to persuade a class of seminary students the importance of discipline. And they were pretty skeptical until 
they saw on TV some footage of a Catholic mafia funeral in Sicily, where well-known members of the mafia were given full Catholic honors in a funeral as if they'd been great Christians. And suddenly it was sort of this aha moment for these students that that can't be what the church is, just baptizing sin and evil. So this is a big part of our tradition, obviously, the Reformed tradition. John Calvin famously refused to serve in Geneva unless he was allowed to establish the practice of church discipline under the authority of the church. And that was unprecedented at the time, um, but they needed Calvin enough that they were willing to give that to him. Eventually, the Belgic Confession, of course, identified church discipline as one of the three marks of a true church in Article 29. The, what I think Bonhoeffer and Calvin and many Reformed theologians collectively have realized is that if you don't have church discipline, not simply because Scripture teaches it, but if you don't have church discipline, it will lead the church into the sort of cultural captivity in which church membership is seen as an entitlement or birthright rather than a commitment to the life-changing grace that the gospel is in a collective way, not just an individual way, but in a collective way where we hold one another accountable. Now, I've learned over the years talking about this in seminary that people come into the conversation with all kinds of assumptions about what church discipline is. And when they hear me sort of advocating church discipline, they think, that's what I'm advocating, even though I may have no idea what where they're coming from. And the reality is, church discipline has often been practiced in terrible ways. It has been used uh, by church leaders to dominate the people under their care and to spiritually abuse the people under their care. And the reformers knew this. Uh, in fact, this is one of the reasons Calvin had such a hard time uh, establishing church discipline is because it had such a bad name. People look back on the way the medieval Catholic Church had abused its spiritual power to tyrannize over the flock. And so Calvin was actually very careful to explain how gospel-centered church discipline is different from the abuses that had happened in the medieval church. We need to have the same humility to say, um, what has passed for church discipline in our own churches, in our own denomination, is not necessarily what scripture is commanding, and we may need to be called uh, to repent, whether because we haven't done discipline at all, but perhaps because we've abused church discipline and we've given it a bad name. And so I think we need to all come to this conversation with a very open mind, with a lot of humility and soul searching to say, okay, first of all, uh, you know, should we and are we doing church discipline? But second of all, is what we're doing actually the kind of gospel-centered discipline that we're called to do? So first of all, just three points about what church discipline is not. And this will be relatively brief, but just to get it out there. First, a church discipline is not a discretionary, coercive power that elders or pastors can wield at will to manipulate church members into submitting to their authority. So notice I said it's not discretionary. That means it's not just a power that Christ gives to church leaders and says, use it however you think best. That's what the medieval church did. Uh, as Calvin said, it's not a magisterial power. 
it's a ministerial power. It can only be used in service to Christ. And so a person really, in, in some, I would even say it's not sufficient if somebody is simply refusing to submit to a council or consistory, doesn't necessarily mean they should be placed under church discipline. I don't think that's a sufficient reason. I would say, and Calvin said, a person should only be disciplined if they refuse to repent of behavior clearly condemned as sinful in Scripture. So there's several elements there. The, the behavior needs to be condemned in Scripture. It needs to be clearly condemned in Scripture. And they need to have refused to repent of that sin. And only then would we even talk about a formal disciplinary process uh, kicking in. Secondly, church discipline is not a means of punishing sins. Um, or let alone what was practiced in the medieval church requiring sort of public penance or public humiliation or something like that. Um, rather, church discipline, again, it's, it's simply a way of really applying, preaching and applying the gospel to people and saying, if you've not confessed your sins, repented of your sins, if you're not seeking to follow the gospel, then you need to remove yourself from the Lord's table. This isn't a punishment. This is us simply speaking the truth to you about your state and warning you uh, of what the consequences will be if it continues. So it's not punishment. Uh, and then thirdly, church discipline is not ostracism. The goal is not to isolate a person from love, friendship, or hospitality. It's not to uh, exclude them from the public gathering for worship all of which I think would be uh, not only uh, against the commands of Christ in the New Testament, but also uh, be flat out against the example of Christ and the way Christ interacted with sinners. And I'm sure we could talk about this more as it comes up, but I've seen it all too often. Um, and I know of cases right now where someone was under discipline and rightly so, but then people wrongly assumed that they should have nothing to do with that person. I think misinterpreting certain biblical texts and that's not what church discipline is supposed to be. So what then is church discipline? If it's not those things, what is it? Um, I would say very broadly that church discipline is the means by which we as the body of Christ hold each other accountable to walk in Christ, to walk in the gracious power of Christ's death and resurrection by confessing our sins and together seeking to grow in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a way of making sure that we're not simply talking the talk, but then living in a way that makes us sheer hypocrites. Uh, its goal is, isn't perfection, though. Its goal is simply repentance, that, that daily process of repentance that will not end until um, we are raised up to life. Now, we often think of discipline as the formal practice of discipline, you know, when the church maybe actively says to someone, you should not be taking Lord's Supper, or we move them from the roles of the church or something like that. But the majority of what goes on under church discipline, I think, is actually just what believers do together, one-on-one -on -one or in groups when they exhort each other or they challenge each other 
to live up to the faith that they profess. Uh, and in, the, in that sense, much of what we call discipleship really does uh, relate to the sort of the beginnings of church discipline. And in most cases, it never goes beyond that. And that's how it ought to be. But when somebody's life becomes sort of egregiously hypocritical, then it's appropriate for the shepherds of the church to step in or be called in and and to themselves, you know, seek to disciple the person, exhort the person, rebuke the person. And only if that person then refuses to repent, then we begin to talk about what is historically called excommunication. Excommunication sounds like a big, scary word to some people, and, and people have all kinds of ideas in their minds of what it means, but I would submit that its meaning is, is right there in, in the etymology of the word. It's, it's, it's barring a person, X, from communion, communication. It's, it's saying that a person should not come together with the body of Christ and enjoy the Lord's Supper unless they are repentant of their sins. Uh, it actually doesn't have any, uh, many of the other things that we associate with church discipline may or may not have anything to do with it from a scriptural standpoint. And, and we, I think, need to get back to sort of really reconsidering what we often associate with it um, and all the different steps that we maybe come up with because of our own church orders and things like that. And we have to distinguish that from the heart of what scripture is really calling us to do. Obvious example in the New Testament of this is 1 Corinthians 5, where there was the man who was living with his father's wife, uh, committing incest, and Paul tells the church to purge that person, not to punish them, remember, uh, for the salvation of that person's soul. And then a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks to a context of, of division between rich and poor in the church, where the way people were living, the way people were practicing the Lord's Supper, was flat out contradictory to what it meant. And what it meant wasn't just, hey, we're all sinners, but Jesus forgives us so we can all just receive this grace and be happy. What it meant was we are called to live together in solidarity as brothers and sisters in Christ, where there's no rich or poor, slave or free, male, female, Jew, Greek, and so forth. Um, but we are committed in love toward one another. And Paul says, when you don't do this, in other words, when you're doing the Lord's Supper in a way that is hypocritical, he says, quote, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. And that's a key phrase. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. If you don't have, and this is where he then calls the church to discern the body. Now, what that means is if, if you don't have any sort of church discipline, if we just come together regardless of, of our conduct and pretend that we can have this happy meal and celebrate our union with Christ, it is possible for us to be such hypocrites that what we're doing is no longer anything to do with Jesus or anything to do with the gospel. In other words, I think that's really a way of saying we then become a false church because we're playing at church, but we're not really being the church. And so it's it's a serious thing. It's an important thing. Another passage that shows us the significance of it is Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe not often thought of as a church discipline type passage, but there Jesus is talking about murder and that if we, you know, are angry at a brother or sister, we are guilty of murdering them in our heart. And he says, if you've come to the altar with your gift and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, don't just keep worshiping and fear, well, I'll deal with that later, as if you can just be a church 
without living it out. He says, no, stop right there. Drop your gift. First, go be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come back and offer your gift. And he says, if you don't, and then he tells kind of a little parable to, to warn us that if we don't do this, um, we will be punished severely. I, I think that is fleshed out most, and this is where I want to end, in Matthew 18, um, which is commonly associated with church discipline, especially verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 18, which often we think of as sort of the three steps of church discipline. You know, first go to your brother or sister on your own, then take someone with you, and then if they still don't listen, take it to the church. But look at the fuller context of Matthew 18. The chapter begins with Jesus talking about uh, how we need to become like little children to enter into the kingdom of God. He then warns the disciples that if we cause any of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for us to have a large millstone hung around our neck and drown in the depths of the sea. So those of us who are pastors and elders, this is a very serious charge. Um, and then he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And then he goes into a parable of the man who owns a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep goes and strays. And he says, you know, a good shepherd will abandon the 99 faithful ones, the righteous ones, and devote all his attention to finding the straying sheep and bringing that sheep back. Because he says in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That, I think, is, is a beautiful image of what church discipline is and ought to be. It's a lot easier when someone is sinning to just say, oh, go your way, we'll, go, we'll separate. It's a lot easier when Christians disagree to just say, oh, we'll separate. Um, it's even easier, I would say, for parents. Sometimes when your kids are going in a way you shouldn't go, sometimes we're tempted to just kick them out of the house. But that's not Christ-like love. Christ-like love pursues and keeps working and working and working until the person comes back. And that is then the context for Jesus to then say, if your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. And that's when he starts walking through the process of Matthew 18. It's really, this is what it looks like to pursue that lost sheep. And at the end of that, when he says that... If the person still doesn't repent after you've told it to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That doesn't mean treat them as the Pharisees would treat a pagan or a tax collector, I believe. I think what he's saying is treat them as Jesus would treat a pagan or a tax collector, which means you love them and you, um, you, know, you devote yourself to them because the righteous don't need the doctor. It's the sinners. In, in a sense, you evangelize them. Then finally, it's very logical that at this point, Peter comes to Jesus and says, well, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And you can kind of hear this. If, if we say all someone needs to do to be restored to the church is just repent, I mean, won't this lead to just the abuse of grace? And that's kind of on Peter's mind. I mean, would you uh, restore someone to church fellowship seven times? Or at that point, would you just say, no, you're permanently excommunicated? It doesn't matter how much you repent. And this is when Jesus tells that famous parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven much by his master, but refused to serve little to the one who owed him a debt. And that passage then concludes with Jesus saying, uh, in the words of the master, you wicked servant, 
I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So again, that then wraps up kind of the context of church discipline. This is fundamentally about pursuing the lost because we love them and don't want to let them go for the sake of, of both their souls and our common unity. But then finally, its ultimate accent is that of grace and of lavishing upon them endless forgiveness as long as they continue to repent and confess their sin and seek that forgiveness. So that's that's what I'll, I have to say. I probably actually talked longer than I meant to, but uh, hopefully it, it gives us a foundation that we can then talk about. So. No, that, that's that's really helpful, and uh, I think most of us, when we get going, talk longer than we uh, anticipate. That's, but it was it was really helpful. Uh, so as we go forward, I, I want to follow up on a couple of those things, um, and we can certainly answer some questions that anybody else has. Uh, but I have some questions too, and, and so just that maybe we can dig in a little deeper. Uh, one of the things you mentioned is that discipline is not ostracism, and, and I hear a lot of people when they are concerned about discipline. They say discipline is only done by churches that think that that Christians are all perfect and that sinners aren't welcome to churches that do discipline. And so discipline is really a form of saying anybody who is imperfect is not welcome here. Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's that's a very common misconception. So maybe you can speak into that a little bit. How does discipline work with welcoming people? Well, and I think part of that comes from the fact that we, it happens too often that somebody is disciplined, not because they refuse to repent, but because they did something, or they did something a number of times, and maybe they did repent, but we still put them under discipline anyway, because we want to be really sure that they're actually repentant. And then I think it does come across kind of self-righteous, as if our, you know, we all come to church every Sunday and confess our sins and profess our faith, but people don't come to us and say, well, I don't know if I should really believe that or not, right? So so we can easily say to ourselves, well, you should believe me because I actually am righteous, but this person we should be extra skeptical of. So I think think one of the reasons people think of it that way is because it often is done that way. And I have a very dear family member actually right now who um, committed egregious sins, um, was rightfully excommunicated, uh repented by every way that you could see you know without knowing someone's actual heart and yet the church would not remove their excommunication because they wanted to see more of a track record and they kind of wanted to see how it played out and then i think in my mind that that ceases then to be what discipline is it ceases to be the church simply as calvin would say declaring and applying the word of christ and now it becomes us not wanting to give up control. And then it does become pharisaical and self-righteous. So I think we, we have to remember that a lot of the objections raised against discipline are because it's often done in a terrible way. And they're actually legitimate. And we can respond to that and say, yeah, you're right. Uh, that's terrible. And we need to repent. That's not what we need to do. Um, but let's not then throw the baby out with the bathwater and go the other extreme and just say, well, then we... We just won't seek any accountability at all. Uh, exactly. 
Um, you also talked about um, that, that great text from Paul about discerning the body. And I think there's some confusion about this these days, too. I, I hear more and more, um, especially amongst those who will probably say that we shouldn't discipline barely at all, though they would probably be quite selective in, in saying there are some things that they would discipline also. Uh, but they would say a lot of things are kind of disputable. They're not very important. They're not salvation issues. Isn't our identity just the bapt baptismal identity? And and kind of once you're in the group, then we're not going to, you know, we're just going to love you and we're going to encourage you and we're not going to be mean to you. How does our identity really rest in the church in a way that discipline makes sense? I wonder if you can boil that down a little bit to what the what your question is, because I, I first thought you were going to ask about First Corinthians eleven, but then I think you're actually saying something slightly different. Well, and I and I think I'm I'm really in a sideways way. Uh, there's a new group with the denomination with a new website, um, Better Together, and they very specifically say that, that some of the ethical issues we're talking about are disputable. They're oh, not right. salvation issues. Yeah. That 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 because we share this baptismal identity, that's all that should matter. Yeah. And so our entire unity in the church, our entire that's it. Yeah. We're we're in baptism together, and so we don't worry about the rest. Right. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I would say there's there's truth to the claim that we shouldn't discipline people over disputable matters. Um, that's absolutely right. And that's another part of the the problem. I mean, often disciplines used in legalistic ways. You know, let's say um, a church will put someone under discipline for um, drinking alcohol um, because it happens to be the conviction of that church that you shouldn't drink alcohol. But that's not, uh, you know, clearly condemned in Scripture. Drunkenness—that's a different matter. Um, and so I think we can acknowledge that for sure. Um, but on the other hand, surely nobody is saying that somebody who waltzes up to the communion table and says, you know, I really think we ought to be um, excluding, uh, that, that we ought to only have churches made up of one race and excluding other people. Um, but I still want to take Lord's Supper with you. Or I think that, um, you know, we ought to, you know, kill people of a certain race or something like that. I mean, we say, well, that's an absurd example, but obviously that's happened in church history. Um, surely we, none of us think that, 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 that actually makes the church a better place, that there's any sort of meaningful unity in that. Um, that's exactly what Paul's saying in first Corinthians 11. If the rich and poor are excluding each other, then you're just playing at it. Um, it's not actually the Lord's supper that you're doing. So, so those are the extremes, perhaps, the sort of the legalism on the one side and then just anything goes on the other side. Then then it actually we do have to do the hard work of saying, well, is this something clearly uh, condemned as sinful in Scripture or is it not? And there are ways that we do that as Christians together and, and we work together on that. Um, to do that. And, I, you know, I don't know the group that you're talking about. I haven't been on the website or anything, so I can't speak to that. But. Um, but I think sometimes people say something is disputable. Um, but that's simply because they refuse to accept what the gospel teaches about something. And I think that's happened many times in church history. And it does take 
wisdom and discernment, and we shouldn't be flippant about it. But there are times when the church has to say, yes, we know we have brothers and sisters who hold these views, and maybe even sincerely so. But based on the Catholic witness of the church, we say this is outside of, of what Christ has commanded us to do. And obviously one of the tasks of the broader church, including synod, is to think very deeply about those issues. Yeah, and synod did that, I think it was two synods ago, uh, in a case of kinism, a, a CRC pastor who was teaching yeah. kinism. And there were a lot of people on the floor of synod. I was at, at that synod as well. A lot of people were saying, how did this ever happen? How could this person have been able to pass, pastor and teach kinism and practice kinism in his, in his church for 20 years? And I believe there was a resolution at that point passed by Senate encouraging churches to not let this happen again and, and revisit the importance of discipline. Now, that pastor defended that kinism. He thought that kinism was part of a faithful Christian testimony, but the church didn't hesitate to say, we're sorry, but you're wrong. It's not. And this is fundamental to our witness. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have a clarifying question um, from somebody watching in particular about the question of the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. I think you talked about that excommunication is primarily uh, barring people from the Lord's Supper. But I think in our in our process, um, he's making the point that often we we bar people from the table before excommunication is is a finished process. Yeah. And so you want a little clarification on on how those things relate. Right. So this is where I'm always quick, because this always comes up in class too. This is where I'm always quick to tell students that what I'm advocating here is more rooted in my reading of scripture and church history than it is on precisely how we've done things in the past and i'm i'm open to saying that some of that perhaps should be clarified or changed and i think sometimes words get popularly used or they come to develop usage that that perhaps doesn't reflect the best of the tradition and in this case i think it would be better to talk about a sort of temporary excommunication and a permanent excommunication but even that i struggle with because uh, how is not all excommunication temporary? You don't know if it's permanent until the person dies. And even then you hold out hope that perhaps they repented without you knowing about it. Um, so if I look at what Calvin did in Geneva, what we would call sort of full excommunication, you know, someone blotted off the rolls, almost never happened. Um, I think it happened less than 10 times in all of Calvin's tenure, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. But it was very common for someone to be said, you can't participate at this session of the Lord's Supper because you haven't repented. And I think it's it's just being honest to say that that is actually saying that unless you repent, you are being cut off from the communion of the church. I mean, that's what excluding someone from Lord's Supper means. It means that we are not recognizing you as part of the body of Christ because you haven't repented. So I'm, I guess I would say I'm speaking in a very theological sense there. Um, and I think it actually is the best reflection of, of what we do and what we mean by what we do, but perhaps not always of how we speak. So I think it's good that they asked about that and just to clarify that. Yeah. So obviously, again, there's, there's lots of ways that we can do discipline badly. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets confused because people assume that's the only way to do it. Yeah. So so I think we have to kind of dig down how, how then is gospel-centered discipline different from those who kind of maybe just want behavior modification. There's a certain way they want people to behave. Some people, yeah. Other people might want to just punish somebody. Others are just judgmental. 
Um, maybe some people are holier than thou and arrogant. Um, so how do we make discipline about the gospel? Yeah, now, and I've never, I've never actually been on a, a session or a consistory that did church discipline because I haven't been an elder. Um, so, you know, even in your question, you can imagine a multitude of scenarios and a multitude of ways it goes badly. I mean, there are times when elders just kind of, and pastors, they retreat behind formula or order, and they do things in a sort of cold, formulaic way. I think that's one way it goes wrong. And, and that's where I'd say, you know, you study a passage like Matthew 18, look at the heart of it. And if you're not doing this in a deeply personal way, a tear-filled way, the kind of way that you would, you know, pursue that lost sheep, and in which the slightest sign of repentance would, would bring the response of the father to the return of the prodigal son, if you're not approaching the situation full of tears and prayer and willing to spend many hours and, and show pour out love for that person, then it's not gospel centered. Um, even, even if it's technically all right, according to church order, that doesn't make it gospel centered church discipline. And, and, and I can't, you know, there's no way to sit and say, well, if you do it this way, then it will be gospel-centered discipline because it is a very pastoral thing. It's 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 quintessentially inherently pastoral. So I feel, you know, like when, when I give an overview, I can kind of give guiding principles. But then we trust our pastors and elders to have the heart of Christ and to do this. And something I didn't mention that, you know, a, a little bit risky to mention this perhaps, but... um. When I first studied Calvin's ecclesiology, I was shocked that when Calvin talked about elders, he never talked about general church governance. Not once does he say, oh yeah, elders' job is to govern the church. He didn't think of that as their job. And, and there's reasons for that. I mean, he's living in a church-state context where the state did a lot of those things. But what I learned was that for Calvin, the fundamental reason for being for elders was to serve as shepherds in the context of church discipline. That's why he thought the office exists. So when we're electing elders or we're appointing or nominating elders, that should actually be our primary character. Is this person a good shepherd, a faithful shepherd? And will they love the people under their care? And so many of the other things that we have elders do may actually be secondary to that. Um, and so we need to start looking for that and prioritizing that uh, that attitude. So I don't know. I mean, that doesn't, like I say, it's pastoral. So it's hard to answer your question in a way that I think leads to anything other than just humility and a recognition, you know, who, who can do this really faithfully. Um, and, and we need a lot of repentance, but it's kind of like other things too, right? Like, you know, the humility that you have when you, you're a parent or something and you realize I have this soul in my care. Um, or, you know, when you're a pastor and you're supposed to get up in the pulpit and say, thus says the Lord, you better have a lot of humility about that. Cause there's a million ways you can screw it up and you'll be held accountable. And I mean, just have that. This is probably why some people don't want to do church discipline and you don't want to go to that extreme. But on the other hand, it is true. Whoever leads one of these little ones to stumble, it'll be better for you if you had a millstone around your neck. It's yeah, and I think so often we think of discipline as, as like a, a police state. 
Yeah. As you know, we have this court system and we're just trying to find something wrong with people. Yeah. Rather than this this idea of a shepherd and their sheep, uh, this loving relationship, this deep concern like a parent for a child. Yeah. It, it's well, a yeah, very you, different attitude. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. I, I think it's right to say that the goal of discipline actually isn't primarily behavioral change per se. It's repentance. And repentance means the person is confessing their sin and they're turning from it. They're turning to something new, but there's no guarantee that it's not going to happen again and again and again. So imagine you have a porn addict in your church. Um, they may well and probably will struggle with matters of lust, whether or not it's actively using porn every single day, they may. Um, and, you know, discipline might happen if they refuse to repent, but otherwise what you're calling them to is not perfection. Um, it's, you actually want them to be free to come to you a week or two later and say, I messed up again and I, it's really bad and I confess it. That's what you want. You, you'd, you'd prefer that to thinking that you had persuaded someone to change their behavior, but they're actually a hypocrite. You see what I'm saying? What we're looking for is authentic, sincere Christ following. Stanley Hauerwas, who's not reformed at all, but he talks about how the church should be the one place where we it is safe for us to tell the truth because we only are able to gather because of the cross, because we're all sinners. And so our goal really in discipline and the Lord's Supper, I think, is for us all to actually do that, to tell the truth, to confess our sins. I mean, Augustine said the essence of the church is, is in the prayer, the daily prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's the goal. It's not to be a perfect church. If you have a church where there's no sinners in it, it's not a good church. Because a good church is always going to be bringing sinners in it and people struggling with sin. And a good church is always going to have people coming together and say, you know what? I sinned and I need to confess that. And so the, the goal here isn't behavioral change per se. I'm Notice I'm saying per se. Obviously, we all strive for that Christ-likeness. But the actual goal in a grace context is a church where we are all constantly coming together and confessing our sins and seeking greater righteousness. And, and uh, yeah, because obvious, obviously conformity to Christ and holiness is a desire yeah. for everybody. Yeah. But but it doesn't begin by looking better on the outside. It right. begins with this relational change, this reconciliation. Uh, yeah, I know and, with, with my own children, you know, I've told them often, I mean, if, if, if something goes wrong, you mess up. I am I am here for you. I want to help you sort through it. Yeah. But if you lie to me, if 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 you're unrepentant, if you're sneaking around, that then the relationship is broken. Right. Then we have a much deeper problem. Now, now we can't even help each other. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what, what sin does with God. Yeah. And that's what it was for the Pharisees, because what mattered to them was the outward. Do we look like a righteous church? You know, what will other people think of our church if they know this person's here or that person's there? And um, that's what leads to hypocritical, self-righteous churches. And a lot of our churches get a bad name for that. And maybe it's because we aren't lavish enough in our grace, um, in, in the way that we welcome people, in the way that we're quick to accept their repentance, 70 times 7. Yeah. Now, obviously, you mentioned that, you know, it's uh, actually doing discipline in the context of the local church. And uh, as a pastor, I, I have been involved with that over the years. Um, and it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's hard work. Uh, it, it's hard 
spiritually and emotionally, um, even time-wise. It takes a great deal of time. And now it's always been difficult, um, but I think we have some things going against us. So I want to talk very briefly about how we can maybe start to do this in a really healthy way locally. Um, obviously, some of discipline relies on people valuing the authority of the church, mm-hmm. that that the pastors and elders have a place in my life uh, where they, they should speak into it. Some of it assumes that that, that people value the, their place in the church, that, that, that being even labeled removed from the church is serious to them. Um, and, and admittedly, that's getting harder. Um, our culture less and less acknowledges any authority, including in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even God's word, but certainly members of the church. Yeah. Uh, and increasingly in kind of a market-driven church society, um, people are kind of like, well, fine, if you're going to say that, I'm going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so the, the social pressure, the authoritative pressure, is perhaps less than it's been in a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do we do discipline um, when a lot of those things that we used to have going for us at least are melting away? It, it doesn't. They're not not as effective. Yeah, I mean, and some of that is out of our control. You know, sometimes people will walk away, and you know, we we keep praying for them, and maybe it'll be a maybe it'll be decades, maybe it'll be never, but um you know we we can't necessarily change that what we can do is seek with the group of people who've come together uh around our preaching and sacraments and discipline at our local church and covenant to do this together and i think we have to remember that like calvin said discipline is actually really just an extension of the word and he meant a couple things by that one is that is kind of what I already said, that when we discipline someone, it ought to be so clear that it is simply the application of Scripture, that no way this is an abuse of authority, at least nobody who interprets Scripture the way we do. Um, And I think there we have to make sure that we don't have an idiosyncratic interpretation of Scripture. Um, That's that's really significant, and and I'd even push back a little bit, only sort of at what you said, in the sense that I would put the emphasis not on the authority of the church per se, but the authority of the word, and that the church's authority stands or falls if it's ministering the word. Because the moment the elders go beyond the word, they're actually, they don't have authority, right? So that's just something to keep in mind, and people will notice it in us. I mean, there people will see it, and so we need, again, I think it actually starts with, if we want a recovery here, pastors and elders starting with a sense of repentance and do I have an inflated view of my authority or whatnot um but now there's something else you said about that and uh, of course one thing leads to another and then you you lose sight of it but I think the other thing is that we need to be this is what I was going to say we need to be proactive in the way that we are teaching about what the gospel is and what the church is. right so for the first time they're hearing about this discipline thing and they had no idea that could even happen to them right but the regular preaching and teaching ministry of the church 
should be calling us towards this life, calling us to um, challenge and exhort one another, calling us to forgive one another, trying to help through the power of the word, creating a community where people feel the freedom to confess their sins. Um, kind of like what you said you do with your children. You know, I've had conversations with my children where, um, you know, before they hit puberty about sexuality matters, that these are some of the changes that are, that are going to happen to you. Maybe you'll feel things like this and feel like things like this. And I want you to know that you can always come talk to me about it. And I'm not going to sit in judgment over you. Um, and I'll help you through that, you know, and that's, that's proactive teaching, right? It's, it's creating the kind it's it's in your preaching and teaching focusing on creating the kind of community where this start, sort of thing not only starts to be plausible not only starts to make sense but becomes something that people actually value and that's going to mean some cult countercultural preaching it's going to mean pushing back against some of the individualism and the it's going to be hard especially in a place like west michigan where some of us are um especially in i think ethnic traditional type denominations where we think of our church membership as part of our heritage, right? These kinds of contexts make this really dif difficult. And I, I wish I had easy answers, but I don't other than it just shows us how much we actually need a collective recovery of, of not just the doctrines of the gospel, but what it means in the life of a church. Yeah, and obviously, I think you know we have some challenge that even even the idea of discipleship as serious business, yeah, of of being conformed to Christ as as kind of a part of the vocation of our Christian walk um, has faded in a lot of ways, and so that is made. But again, that's because the church has allowed it to happen, yeah, for better and, and, or for worse. And because we're we're still kind of in the remnants of Christendom, where there are a lot of people for whom their Christian identity and what it means to them is is deeply conflated with their cultural identity. And we need to start to tease that out again, actually, what are ways in which we become culturally captive and need to move away to what the church really is supposed to be? It's not going to be easy. Yeah. And and I can say, you know, from from the other side of discipline on, you know, having gone through that with people. And, and I know a lot of people have said, oh, we don't do discipline anymore in churches because they haven't seen the church excommunicate a lot of people publicly. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I can safely say that it's not accurate. I mean, like even in, even in Calvin where yeah. they were, they were pretty diligent, yeah. but that final public step is very rare. Uh, that doesn't mean there's no discipline going on. Um, right. Encouraging people in the life of discipleship, challenging people in their sin, that encouraging them to to repent and and lead a holy life those things are happening i think in a lot of churches but it's all behind the scenes as it should be yeah i think you're right so there was uh in 2018 calvin seminary did a forum issue on church there were articles by me jeff wyma sarah schreiber jewel maidenblick and one of those articles actually they did research they reached out to churches in the crc and asked people for their stories and it's interesting because there there are certain people who, in the CRC among whom there's a, a perception that nobody does discipline anymore or that all the discipline stories that are out there are bad. And I think you're right. That's because that's what gets people's attention. But there are actually many churches that quietly do things. And and you don't necessarily, because who goes around and trumpets such things? Um, you know, how many hundreds of times does it happen that 
somebody sins, a brother or sister comes alongside them, or perhaps even an elder or pastor, and calls them to repent in a loving, gracious way, and they do so, and that's the end of it. As it should be. <laughs> As it should be. And, and of course, as office bearers, you particularly, I mean, you promise, in fact, not to reveal those things. That's one of yeah. the vows you take. Right. Um, we have a bunch of questions. Um, obviously, one of the issues we're dealing with is that this idea of kind of personal discipleship that that shepherds in the church are doing for the members of the congregation that has a long tradition um there's a different but related issue when we start talking about office bearers mm. what does discipline look like if you're one of the leaders whether yeah. that be a deacon or an elder or a pastor or or perhaps but certainly office bearers and then on top of that what does it look like kind of at the council level overall when a whole council goes rogue or at the classical level or the synodical level? And so given what we've talked about with kind of personal discipline, how can we extend those things now to think about what it means for the discipline of office bearers, of a council, or even of a classes? Yeah, and it's hard because that you know, passages like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 5, aren't written with that in mind, right? And so there's also a history in our churches about a different kind of discipline that's discipline for office bearers, and there's procedures in place and that sort of thing. And there, there there's a little bit more sort of uh, attempting to extrapolate from biblical principles and how we do that, right, rather than um, just kind of seeking to follow some of these basic principles. Um, but I would say, and I guess it's it's hard not to answer this in the context of the Christian Reformed Church, obviously, that we're all part of. So right. I think, you know, we we do have a covenant that we've all signed, the covenant for office bearers. And the church order explains quite clearly, I think, some of the implications of that. And I think we th there's sometimes this sense that if we do that, if we challenge each other in those sorts of things, I, I guess to step back a second, there's this temptation to just say, can't we all just be nice about it? And if we confront each other, or challenge each other on these sorts of things, that somehow we're being divisive or unloving. When I would actually say... When you have a covenant with somebody and you promise to love each other in certain ways, and then you pursue them on the model of the leaving the 99 for the one, that actually is a way to love them. Now, of course, you have to ask yourself, am I doing this with a loving attitude? Am I doing this because I, I long for and pray for their restoration? Um, and if I don't, then I shouldn't be doing it. But but we should be in Christ-like ways seeking to restore one another to unity and if again if someone then sort of rejects that process and, and and refuses to even be part of that then we're dealing with a fundamental breach uh you know a tragic schism and it becomes very painful much like any time an excommunication would be painful but the only loving way to uh, live out a covenant is to live out the covenant in hopes of restoration. And I, 
I'm not saying this lightly. I've had incredible uh, emotional distress over this in in the past year. Um, I have lots of people I'm close to who don't necessarily agree about some things that have happened in the past year in the Christian Reformed Church. Um, and in, in a sense, from I think from like a worldly standpoint, it would be easy to just say, well, why don't we all just get along? Or even why don't we all just um, you know, sort of leave each other alone? Um, but I think that would be the worldly perspective. I don't think that's the New Testament's perspective ever. Um, and so I think, I suppose what I would leave us with then is the thought that one, to the entire church, let, let's genuinely, sincerely try to live out our covenant together as best we can. Uh, but number two, don't turn that into a sort of worldly kind of battle either, where your goal is to defeat an enemy rather than restore a brother or a sister, because then that's not the gospel either. And if, you know, we might think, oh, we're on the side of orthodoxy and we're carrying out what church is supposed to believe. But if our heart's not in the right place, if it's not filled with love for the people that we're engaging, then Jesus wants nothing to do with that. Uh, and I think that's something that we need to keep in mind and be very careful about. What, whatever happens in the coming months or years, there should be many, many tears. And I can say you were there, Stephen, at the Synod last year. There were many tears. There were. Um, I didn't see very many people at all who didn't have tears. Um, and I and I think we need to, to keep remembering that uh, that going forward. Yeah. Um, I, kind of a an odd question was asked, but it is pertinent. Um if discipline is commanded, which I think it is, I don't think God says that it's really optional in the Christian life. Right. If it's one of the marks of the true church, the question is, should we discipline people who refuse to discipline when they should discipline? So in other words, is, is the failure to discipline itself a matter of discipline yeah it, it's tricky because you're getting into ecclesiastical polity issues and what exactly that looks like so it's it's just um i i would prefer there to say that that's when our our covenant kicks in our denominational covenant that we have with each other because Without such a covenant, without such a commitment toward one another, this will never happen anyway. So, for instance, you look at the Baptist church down the road, and they're not disciplining the way you think they should. What are you going to do about that? It's That's not who you've been called to shepherd. So there is a sense in which we have to trust each other. However, if there are, if we're in covenant with somebody where we've agreed to do things a certain way, then I think there is sort of a covenantal, um, denominationally ordered way to do that. Um, but but I, I hope you hear that the, the distinction I'm making here is that I, I just think we have to be really careful when we say what we're doing here is just applying the Bible um, in our sort of ministerial authority as elders. There's a difference between that and what does it mean to be a denomination together 
where there's a whole set of procedures and there's a certain kind of polity that's unique to us in play. What does love look like in that context? Um, we still need to hold each other accountable. I mean, everything that I've said, but I think our level of dogmatism about exactly what that looks like or how it's going to happen, we have to be careful. We have to be humble about that because we're dealing with human structures, human systems. You see what I'm saying? So you have some Christians who are more congregationalists, some who are more Episcopalian, some who are more Presbyterian. These aren't necessarily things Bible speaks clearly about. So what I'm pushing back there is not so much the ought we to hold each other accountable, but maybe it's to a overly enthusiastic desire to bring down a hammer. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I, and I, I think it's very there's easy there's to be misunderstood here, but I hope you hear the the distinction that I'm saying. Absolutely, and I think that's you know, rather than thinking of it as, as a as a court system or a police system, yeah. we think back yeah. to the family scenario. Uh, I know perhaps when when my children were very young. Uh, my parents would occasionally suggest uh, mm -hmm. that I could maybe discipline their grandchildren a little better. Yeah. Uh, because they were concerned about their grandchildren. Right. Uh, and it wasn't uh, in any way, to, you know, bringing down the hammer on us. It was out of love uh, for right. us and for our children and saying, we really care about how they turn out. Yeah. Uh, and so, you, you know, you can't ignore that. <laughs> That's dangerous. That's going to lead them down, uh, uh, you know, a whole right. path that, that they've been through that I haven't. Yeah. And when you and and then I can say, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. I love my children. I don't want them to go that direction. Uh, yeah, but but I will add to that that again, thinking back to the case a few years ago with the church that was practicing kinism. If there is a church that is its practices, its teaching are blatant violation of the gospel, and they they refuse to be restored. There does come a point where we have no choice if we have any integrity in the gospel together as a, a denomination or as a church to a, a time comes when you say, we have to exclude you. And, and that's yeah. where the tears come, and that's where the weightiness comes. But if we don't do that, at a certain point, we cease to be a church, at least a reformed church. And, and I, I think it's, it's so helpful. And, and again, as you, you mentioned it earlier, because people often, again, think excommunication means oh, now, now we're never going to talk to you again. Right. You know, and that's not what it means. What it's right. really saying is from everything we have seen in your life, we're not sure you are a Christian. And, and so we're not going to pretend you're a Christian at this stage. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than treating you as a brother and sister that we're going to disciple, we're going to treat you as an unbeliever we're going to evangelize. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with them? We love them. Mm -hmm. And and we reach out to them, and we tell them the gospel, and we pray for their repentance. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's in no stage in that do we say, that's it. Right. Know, we're and, never talking to you again. And we also remember that we're not saying you are not a brother, you are not a sister, we're, we're, only Christ knows that. What we're saying is, if you don't repent, then these will be the consequences, as Jesus has warned us and, and commanded us to tell you, right? So we're not saying you're not elect, we're not saying you're, you know, eternally damned. What we're saying is, if you 
don't repent of your sins and seek to follow Christ. This is what Christ's word tells us about your situation. And we have to um, we have to be honest about that. It's been too terribly long, um, but people are wondering. Um, and I, I don't want to get into too many specifics because I think you very particularly wanted to keep this not theoretical. It's not it's not a theoretical problem because we're talking about very real people. But if if a if a church refuses to discipline ever under any circumstance, uh, the question is: Are they still a true church? I think the extension to that question is: If as a denomination we allow whole congregations to refuse to discipline, do we remain a true church? If we were, you said if we refuse to allow. So in other words, if if as a denomination we just say, you know what? If you don't want to discipline people in your congregation or in your classes, that's fine. Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, we have a covenant, and part of our covenant includes, uh, you know, what the Belgic Confession says about church discipline, what the Heidelberg Catechism says about church discipline. And so even if someone were to say, well, I think that's all just wrong. I don't think the Belgic ever should have said that, or I don't think the Heidelberg should have said that. Um, well, then there are channels to perhaps advocate for amending the confessions. But as long as those are our confessions, we've covenanted to uphold them um, because we believe that this sort of reformed system and its basic principles is... Uh, faithful application of scripture and so i guess what i'm saying is even if someone's convinced that that's scripturally wrong um this is who we've covenanted to be together so then that person shouldn't try to subvert that i would say they should be honest about it through the correct channels seeking it to amend it and if that fails and the church clearly speaks to it then they they ought to either resign as a pastor or elder um or deacon um or leave the denomination now i i prefer to say the former because i don't want anyone to leave the denomination but if in genuine conscience they can't carry out the covenant for office bearers then i don't see how there's any integrity in doing anything other than resigning from their office and i i think your idea of covenant together is really really helpful and important that we remember because obviously the bible is the the foundation of all these things mm -hmm. but we have at least as office bearers and for those who made profession of faith we have made public vows yeah before god to live a certain way mm -hmm. and i think the scriptures are pretty clear when you when you make a vow like that that matters yeah. you are you are bound to those vows uh, yeah unless unless scripture supersedes them right and and so i think it's fair to say we take our vows seriously yeah and i mean i guess this does go to your point you know like like if if we're seeing churches or classes that just refuse to do that um it's it's unprecedented of course um so it's hard to know exactly how to handle that um i certainly don't want to be the coach uh but 
at the same time, if we just let that be, we're essentially saying we're we're essentially saying that together we all abandon our polity, that we all together abandon our covenant. And that's that's kind of a form of denominational suicide. Um, so so I, I think you don't even have to be a Christian to recognize that. Um, and again, I want to be respectful toward people. I want to say I understand that some people may come to a place where in, in their conscience they think that that polity or that church order or something about that is wrong. But then I think there's ways to live that out with integrity um, by resigning their position, by pursuing a certain channel and then resigning their position. But I don't believe that includes continuing as if you held to the covenant when you don't and just attempting to sort of subvert the system from the inside. I don't think that's, I, I think even non-believers would say that lacks integrity. So, and, and I understand the temptation to do it. Um, but it also dooms the church to just incredible conflict and pain and bitterness. Um, and I, I mean, who wants to live through that? My dad lived through a church split. I've been through more local type situations and it's not, no, no, nobody should ever want that. And I don't think true Christians ever want that. So I don't know. I, 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 I hope people are hearing from me that I, I'm trying to spurn any sort of combative mindset. I'm trying to spurn any sort of triumphalism or, um, but I am trying to urge us all to what does it look like in the spirit of the gospel to live out our covenants with each other in all honesty? Um, and, and I think that that will the answer to that question will lead us forward. And I think it's it, it's sad that in a broken world, obviously discipline is necessary, but also discipline itself is broken. Yeah, um, and yet, when you look at the picture that that God gives us in the scriptures, and I'm I'm so glad you went there at the beginning. You know, God disciplines those whom He loves. For God, this is not punishment. Uh, punishment is for is for those who reject the gospel. Uh, yeah. For those whom He loves, His elect, uh, He He doesn't want to harm them. No, he, His His desire for them is so beautiful. It is so good. It is so perfect. Yeah, and it's it's when we're walking away from God and pushing back in God that's when we're being harmed, and I think when when the church in true love we walk together, yeah. and we say I want I want you to be as much like Jesus to have as much hope and joy and peace and and fruit as possible. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing, not a not a bad thing. No, I mean, again, the premise of all this that I tried to emphasize at the beginning is that we are talking about things that are not only things that are identified as sinful in Scripture, but that are clearly identified as sinful in Scripture, and where not just that the person has committed those sins, but where they refuse to repent of those sins. So th there's a lot of qualifications, right? And in that situation, we're saying, if our faith is true, if the gospel is true, if the word of God's reliable, 
then in those cases, there's a, a whole lot at stake. And we've been called to be shepherds. And so there's no love at all in just letting somebody go that way any more than there would be love in a parent allowing your you know 12 year old to experiment with deadly drugs um and that that's a, a pale comparison to the stakes here right so i um i think that now now you could say well what if someone in good conscience thinks that the word of god's not reliable on this case or that uh that our faith is false um then live that out have the courage to live that out but we can't have it both ways our faith can't be true and the word of god true and also false at the same time to decide do we believe this or not and if we believe it i think scripture's teaching here is very clear you know in a passage like first corinthians 6 you know where where paul identifies people of a, a range of different sins you know that he says, do not be deceived. He wouldn't say, don't be deceived if there was no danger of being deceived, right? People aren't usually purposefully deceived. They're they're genuine about it. But he's saying, don't be deceived. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying if you fall into it. He's not saying if you struggle with it. Um, you may fall many times. But if you simply live that way of life without confessing it and repenting of it, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And as, as it's hard to say that, it's sobering to say that. Um, but if if scripture says that so clearly, what are we if not ministers of the word? I mean, is this our church or this Christ's church? And I, that, that's, a, I think, a wonderful way maybe for us to, to wrap things up a little bit. I mean, obviously, discipline always comes in that sense with tears and with prayer. It is it is sobering stuff, but at the same time, it should never be mere humans criticizing other people. Right. Um, it's it's Christ Himself working in His Word and through yeah. His people to bring people into communion with Him uh, onto eternal life. Right, and and maybe if I could just end with this word, a uh, personal note, I suppose. Um, Shortly after Elizabeth and I got married, I think it was probably a year into our marriage or so, we decided that we wanted to have something in our house that kind of framed our family and what we were all about in the years to come. And we ended up choosing the uh, a printing of the Rembrandt uh, painting of the prodigal son, which is now above our fireplace in our living room. And that was because we thought, you know, over the years as we were teaching our kids and we're disciplining our kids, we want them to see that always there as a representation of the love that God has for us and that we want to show to our children. And I think that should be our posture. Um, I think that's the posture of Matthew 18. And uh, if, if, if we walk away with one thing out of this, everyone meeting, I think we should be in, in a sort of a prayer. Is, is that my attitude towards the church? Is that what I'm longing for? And what can I do to make that happen? Thank you so much uh, for sharing with us tonight. I, I I know you're busy, but this is this is really critical, and it's uh and it's comes from a pastor's heart. I know you're a professor, but uh, 
we, we can see your heart for the church and for its people and that's a beautiful thing.